This is a dollar bill. Perhaps you are familiar, but maybe not because really very few people are, or more and more, I guess, people are starting to use less and less cash. And some of the smaller currency, like the dollar and the change, are starting to lose some of their value because there's very few things that you can get for just a dollar and especially just for some change. In fact, here's a fun tidbit for you in case you didn't know this. It actually now costs more to make a penny than a penny's worth. To make a penny, it costs our government 1.5 cents, and a penny, as you might know, is worth one cent. And so for every penny that's manufactured, we're actually losing money. But let's all pretend that we've seen a dollar bill before. And if you haven't, welcome. This is a dollar bill. And so on our dollar bill, there's a lot of stuff. And I really I like our currency. I think it's kind of pretty. And I know other cultures and other countries have prettier, more colorful things. And some of our higher bills have moved towards that. And it's off-center. But look how delightfully symmetrical this is, which is just very pleasing to me. And it's just very classic looking. There's all sorts of things all over the dollar bill. In the front, you have this picture of George Washington, our first president. All over it, you can very clearly see how much the dollar is worth. It is worth one, 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 one dollar, and all sorts of other identifying things that help it to be marked, help us to know which dollar it is, and also hopefully keep people from being able to counterfeit it. On the back, we have some more imagery. Again, it tells you where it's from, the United States of America. It tells us how much it's worth, one dollar. You have this really disturbing pyramid thing, and I'm sure it has a meaning. I don't actually know what it is, but it looks like some sort of Egyptian Lord of the Rings thing happening, and it makes me a little uncomfortable when I look at it. And then we have an eagle over on this side, and then right in the middle with all of this other imagery and all these things going on, we have four little words, in God we trust. And here on this piece of currency in our, our lowest form of paper money, we see an image and an illustration of a constant tension in our culture and in our world. You have all the things that make America American, all these things that symbolize all the different aspects of our nation's existence, and then right in the middle in very small print, in God we trust. And it shows us a little bit about the tension that we constantly live in as citizens, both of a country like the United States of America, and also people who claim to follow after Christ and be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And for us, a lot of times that looks like adding in God we trust to the list of all other things that we're doing. And so throughout our history, one of the things that has marked American Christianity is constantly being in a tug of war between identifying with nation and with kingdom. But this is not something new to us. This is not something that America invented. This isn't something that we have some sort of copyright on. But as long as there have been Christians for the past 2,000 years, and Christians have lived in different places and in different nations and in different kingdoms. There's always been a tension. Sometimes that tension is like we have where it's a balancing act of trying to figure out exactly where we belong. Sometimes the, the kingdom has swung deep into having even clergy as their ultimate highest leaders. And, and the, the church has become very overwhelming in the state. And then uh, what tends to happen there is the, the church gets statey. The state doesn't get too churchy. But then on the other side, we have cultures and places where it's illegal and, and dangerous to be a follower of Christ. And so people who live in those cultures and those communities not only feel ostracized, but have to fear for their lives because of their faith in Christ. And so it presents a deep conflict. 
It presents a tension in our lives of trying to figure out how we live in the midst of two kingdoms at once. And as we've been looking through the book of Luke, we see Jesus marching towards the cross. Last week, we find Jesus in Jerusalem going for the last week of his life before he makes his way to the cross and ultimately to his resurrection. And Jesus, throughout his entire ministry, has been existing in the midst of two kingdoms, but these are both religious kingdoms. And we've seen the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders, Jesus bringing in this new kingdom of God that had been planned before the foundations of the earth, and these religious leaders trying to hold on to the practices and the tradition that they held so dear. And now in the midst of that, as Jesus is moving closer and closer to the cross, he gets invited into a conversation about how the kingdom of God and its king fit into a world filled with kings and kingdoms. And so today we're going to see Jesus answer that question and through that find our place as we seek to sort out all the details of our lives living in between two kingdoms and find out how we can both be followers of Christ and good citizens in the places in which God has placed us. And so we're going to be in the book of Luke today, as we have been for so long, and we'll be finishing up here in the next probably five weeks or so. But starting in verse 19, this is the word of God. It says, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he has told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher. We know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you and praise you for your word. And God, we thank you that you speak to all things and all seasons in our lives. And God, today as we discuss what it means to live as members of the kingdom of God, but also recognizing that you have a reason and a purpose for the places in which you put us, God, help us to learn how to balance well these two things that oftentimes can feel tension with one another, But God, also maybe easy to push together so well that we can't tell one from the other. So teach us through the teachings of Christ today how to live as members and citizens of the kingdom of heaven and also citizens of earth. 
knowing how to honor the authority that you've placed in our lives, but also constantly honoring and giving glory to our ultimate authority in you. And God, the only way we can navigate this well is with your help. And so we just ask all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's look at the setup here in Luke chapter 20, verse 19. There is a growing tension between now the religious leaders, these chief priests and scribes, and the people that were following after Jesus. And last week, if you were here, we saw a very tense discussion between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees in which they again tried to trap Jesus, and then he starts to tell them a parable. Basically, letting them know that they're on the wrong side of what God is doing in the world. And with this parable, Jesus strips them of some of their authority in front of all of these other people gathered around, and they decided that this can't happen. That Jesus is starting to chip away at what they had been working for their entire lives. They were people who were respected by the crowds and the masses. People came to them to know more about who God was and what it looked like they were considered righteous men. And now Jesus was coming in saying that everything that they were a part of, everything that they were doing, was about to be done away with because he was bringing in something new. And so with all of this building, they realized that they didn't have the ability to catch Jesus on religious grounds. They weren't going to be able to trip him up in front of all the other people. They weren't going to be able to take advantage of him because every single question that they asked him, he was able to answer well and shut them down and not only answer it well, but make them look foolish in the process. And so they had a plan. It says that they sought to lay hands on him. They had finally gotten done with all of these questions. They wanted to be able to put an end to him, not by destroying his reputation, but destroying him. And so they realized this parable was against them. And then they started to understand we can't get him on these religious grounds, so maybe we can try another angle. And so it says in verse 20 that they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere so that they might catch him in something he said, so to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They thought, you know what? If we can't get him on religious grounds, if we can't turn the crowds against him, maybe we can turn the governor against him. Maybe we can turn the nation of Rome against Jesus. This was really perceptive of them because they knew what the religious and political world was like during this first century, living under the occupation of the Roman Empire. Because Rome tended to let people believe and practice and worship as they would like until it became a problem for Rome. And so you could practice your religion and worship your gods as long as that didn't interfere with their jurisdiction or authority. And there were plenty of times when it did. There were multitudes of Jewish would-be messiahs that were rising up, trying to overthrow Rome, trying to take Jerusalem back. And when that happened, then Rome became less forgiving of these other practices. And so the religious leaders thought, hey, if we could just get Jesus to say something that would be against the emperor or against the governor or something that, that is subversive to the state, then maybe we could catch him on, on legal grounds instead of trying to get him on religious grounds. And they thought, you know what? This is a win-win. 
Because then we're able to accomplish our dirty deed of getting rid of Jesus and having him taken out of this, of this scene and we get our place back, but we don't have to be the ones who do it. We could do a dirty job with clean hands and walk away and just blame it on the state. And so they hatched their plan. And they sent some spies to go and to watch Jesus. And it says that they pretended to be sincere. They pretended to be parts of these crowds that were following Jesus all through the, na- all through the city. And then they start asking him questions. And they're so sneaky with this. They come to Jesus and they start with flattery. They say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. That is just a beautiful introduction to a conversation. It has a a hinge of what my middle schoolers will say to me during the week when they want something. (laughs) Oh, teacher, you are wise beyond understanding, and we love your presence and all that you do. Might I have a study guide to use while my test is out, right? This is kind of what's happening here. And so these religious leaders, they come to Jesus in disguise, and they say, hey, we know that you are wise and wonderful, and you teach the truth, and you show no partiality to anyone, especially the government. You would never go side with anyone but God, and you only teach the truth. And so they were using this flattery to get close enough to Jesus to try and stab him in the back. And in this picture, we see a lot about how temptation works in general but especially on how these other kingdoms and these other principalities and ideologies try to come to the people of God and chip away at our trust in Christ. Think about from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when we see Eve in the garden tempted by the serpent. He doesn't come to her immediately saying, hey, God is a liar, don't pay attention. He says, did God really say that you couldn't eat from all of these trees? causing doubt, causing her to question the things that God had said. And then finally, when he sees an opening, when he sees that she's not steadfast on what God had told her, then he starts to appeal not to the temptation itself, but to her own vanity, saying, listen, God just doesn't want you to be like him. God just knows that if you do this, that you might not need him anymore, and so you can just pull away. And the same thing is true when all of these things come into our lives and tempt us to pull our trust away from God and in something else. They just whisper to our base desires. Saying, you know, you don't need God if you just have this much money. If you're able to get this power. If this politician is able to get an office, then you're able to trust in him and you don't need these things that you think so important. And they start to try to chip away at our trust in God and replace it with something else. And when that doesn't work, they'll use our base desires and start appealing to our needs or to our fears or even our vanity. But these kind of temptations always come. And they rarely come directly, but they're always coming trying to pull us to trusting in something else more than we trust in God. And so these religious leaders are trying to set Jesus up by trying to appeal to his ego, saying, we know that you teach wise and whatever you say goes and that you would never, ever veer from the word of God. And so why don't you answer this question for us? Is it right for us to give tribute or to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And now they feel like they've got him right where they want him. There's only two options. Do we pay taxes to Caesar or do we not? 
And so here, Jesus could either reject his kingdom for the state and to protect himself from Rome, or he could reject the state for the kingdom. And then they could go to the Roman governors and say, this Jesus, he's telling people that they shouldn't pay taxes and they shouldn't do these things because the kingdom of God is greater than the kingdom that you have built. And so it leaves us with a really important question to be answered. Do Christians have a place in the nation? Should we pay tribute to Caesar? And even in the first century, there were a lot of different views on how the people of God fit in to these worldly kingdoms. And you can look at the different groups that started to form within the Jewish world. And so you have a group like the Essenes, who decided that everything that the Roman Empire and all that it brought into the world was so vile and so evil that they wanted nothing to do with it. They were puritanical in that sense. And so they decided, we're not going to have anything to do with this. We're not going to be a part of this. We're not going to live in your cities. We're not going to eat your food. We're not going to speak your language. And so they move out into the desert, and they built for themselves a little commune so that they could keep themselves pure and undefiled from any outside influences. And so they thought the best response was to be completely separate from anything that was going on in the world outside of what they held to be true. Then you have groups like the Zealots. The Zealots, as given by their name, were fairly zealous. And believed so firmly to the things that they held dear, but also recognized all of this empire that was over them as their enemies. And so they thought, this is not the people. These are not the people who are supposed to be in charge. And so it's our duty to stand as God's people and rise up against them and overthrow them and see this evil tyranny taken out of God's holy land and our people be able to get back into that place. And so they were constantly using these tactics of of trying to rise up and overthrow the governor and overthrow the Roman Empire because they believed that was their role in society to see it overturned. Then you have the Pharisees, these religious leaders who were in charge of protecting the oral law. And their philosophy was a little different. Much like the Essenes, they didn't want to be a part of what the Roman Empire and the Roman world was doing, and they wanted to keep themselves separate, but they also didn't want to move into the desert. And so they thought, you know what, we'll just live here and we'll do our thing, we'll keep to ourselves, we'll just trust that they'll keep to themselves as long as there's this nice big separation between church and state, and there won't be any issues. So we'll keep our mouths shut, we'll keep our practices going, we'll let them do whatever they want, and we should be fine. And then there were the Sadducees. And the Sadducees had become so influenced during the Greek empire that they had become very Hellenistic. They had become very Greek in their philosophy. And so while they were Jewish by birth, while they were Jewish by heritage, their worldview, their philosophy, their religious practice tend to look a lot more like the secular Greek world than it did like the world in which they came out of. And so they looked at the state around them and thought, you know what, if you can't beat them, join them and immersed their religious practice into what everyone else around them was doing. And of course, we can see those things happen in our country and all over the world and throughout history in the Christian life as well. There are some that choose to to move out completely and to find little communes and hide away and try to protect everything that we have and make sure there's no outside influences and just try to keep to ourselves. 
There are those who feel like it's our job to, to overthrow the government and to establish some sort of theocracy where it's just a complete and total Christian nation. There are some of us, and I think this is where most of us fall, that feel more like the Pharisees where we say, you know what, I'll mind my business, you mind your business, and as long as we don't have any kind of crossing ties, then there's no big deal at all. And then, of course, there's those of us who say, ah, is it worth holding on to these convictions? Is it worth holding on to these principles? Is it worth really digging into the Bible and following Christ to the letter of the law and start to become where we look more like the culture and the state and the world around us than we do like the Christ who has saved us? But each of these things falls short in knowing how to live in the midst of two kingdoms. And we see what happens in the, the people that follow Jesus. You have a man named Simon the Zealot, who I'll give you a few guesses on which group he belonged to. He was a zealot. You even see some of that in the life of Peter as when Jesus, in, in the next couple days of Jesus' life, as he's about to be arrested, Peter is standing up and taking his sword and ready to protect Jesus and attack the state on behalf of his king. And so we see that there's these tensions inside of even Jesus' own followers, but they had to change to follow Christ. There was no room for Simon the Zealot to be a zealot any longer because he was following after Christ. We see Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, and Paul in the same way, who when they encountered Jesus, everything about how not only they saw God and saw the, the things that he was supposed to be doing as a follower of God changed, but even his understanding of how his role in the state had changed, all of it was different. And the same must be true about us. There is something unique and something different about being a Christian and how that changes our identity. You see, normally we have a tendency to use Christian as an adjective. And so I am a Christian American or a Christian teacher or a Christian construction worker or a Christian athlete. We use Christian to identify what we look at as the greater identity in our lives. It's just something that we add on to the long list of the things that we do that make us who we are. But the reality is that when we trust in Jesus, that is an all-consuming, identity-changing, lifelong, eternity-shaping obedience that takes the things that once defined us and covers them by the blood of Christ and puts them in their proper place. If you were here early on as we were looking through the book of Luke, we saw a whole passage where people tried to follow after Jesus, and they would say things like, I want to follow you, but I want to follow you, but first let me go tie up some things at home. I want to follow you, but first let me go bury my mother and my father. I want to follow you, but I don't want to give up all the other stuff I have. And with each of those things, Jesus says, no, no, no. If you're not willing to follow me totally and completely, if you're not changing your entire identity as you follow after me, then you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. You see, when we follow Jesus, we leave the old behind because he makes us new. We no longer identify with our old identities. We become Christians, nothing more and nothing less. That is who we are. But this isn't a call to totally abandoning all the other things. This doesn't call us to go out into the desert and establish communes for ourselves. But it takes these things that once felt very ultimate, whether it's our national identity or our occupations or our families or whatever things we use to identify ourselves totally and completely. It takes those things from being our identity and moves them to being simply things that we do or where we live. And they all become means by which we can glorify God. You see, we have to recognize 
that God gives us gifts. He gives us passions. He gives us relationships, jobs, even national citizenships and an understanding of place so that we can glorify him. And he does all of those things for a reason and for a purpose. We just have to realize that these things are not ultimate, but they matter. And so even when it comes to something as, that seems like such a big deal as our national identity, it is just one of the things in the list that God has given us to use for his glory and for the good of others. It's not our identity, and it's not who we are, and so we need to be able to put it in its proper place. But clearly, we have a purpose in our place. And so what do we do? How do we find that balance? of identifying completely and totally with Christ as members of God's kingdom, but understanding that there is a reason for everything that God does in our lives and in the place in which God has placed us, how do we find the balance there? Well, Jesus helps us out with the answer. In verse 21, we see the setup. They flatter Jesus. In verse 22, they lay down the question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not a yes or no question and i think they've laid it out as simply as possible they've learned from their mistakes at this point they don't want to give jesus any big options they don't want to give him a way to talk himself out of it and so it's a yes or a no question and so they set him down they said jesus should we pay taxes or not yes or no go i love the show shark tank and this feels like a Shark Tank maneuver. If you haven't watched it, it's a delightful show. I could just watch hours and hours of it. And I don't know why. There's just something amazing about watching these people just throw insane amounts of money at things where you can play golf while you go to the bathroom or something. It's just very strange inventions and products, but they're just throwing money at it. And sometimes the sharks, who are the people that are investing in these things, do this trick where they say, I will give you $25,000 for 10% of your company, but you have to tell me now, yes or no. You can't talk to anyone else. You can't think about it. Yes or no. Tell me now. Trying to force them into making this quick decision. That seems to be what's happening here. These religious leaders, they take their opportunity. Jesus, do we pay taxes to Caesar? Should we give tribute to Caesar? Yes or no. Answer now. And then Jesus says, does anyone have a coin? And they think, oh, we thought we had it. Why is he asking for a coin? Just give us a yes or no answer. Please don't do this Jesus thing that you do to us all the time. Just say yes or no so we can have you arrested and have you killed. Just make this easy. Please no one give him a coin. But they do. And they hand him this coin, and Jesus says, whose face is on this coin? And I just have to imagine, again, they just, <sighs> it's Caesar's face. Go ahead and do it, man. Just get it over with. It's Caesar's face. And Jesus says, okay, well, then here's what you should do. He says, perceiving their craftiness, he said, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And so here, while they gave him a black and white yes or no answer, Jesus offers a better solution. And he tells them that it's about balance. He says, whose face is on this? It's Caesar's? Well, then you need to give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And if you are going to be required a tax by this person who is in authority because God has put all authority in its place, if that's what they're requiring of you, then you give them what belongs to them because that's his face on it. And so if he wants it back, then give it back. But then he says, but also, 
give to God what is God's. And so when he draws this dividing line, it's not a 50-50 split between kingdom and nation. He says, you see, these things with Caesar's face, he can have all those, but everything else that belongs to God, which is a whole lot of stuff, because the Bible says God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and that he created everything that we can see, that he holds the universe in the palm of his hand. And so Jesus says, if Caesar wants that little bit of tax and you need to pay that tribute, then you do that. But everything else, everything else about who you are, everything else about what you do, everything else about where you go and all these things in the world, everything else you have belongs to God. And so you give the rest to God. You see, Caesar has its place, but it is very small compared to God's. And so Jesus calls those who are gathered around to see the kingdom of God as their primary citizenship, but to still pay dues, even though they're smaller, to our earthly kingdom. And that same thing is true for us as well. And so how do we do this? What kind of mindset do we have to be in to be able to do our duty as citizens of a country, as people who live in a certain place with laws and governances and authorities and responsibilities for its citizens, but also recognizing that our ultimate identity and our ultimate citizenship is with Christ? Well, the Bible teaches us several different things. We're told that we should be in the world and not of it. To recognize that our place is not our identity, but a a means through which God has given us the ability to help his kingdom grow and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so to constantly keep that mindset that we are strangers in a foreign place, that we are exiles, much like the people of the Old Testament when the Hebrew people were in Egypt in slavery, when the Hebrew people again years later were in Babylon, God told them it is your responsibility to be in this place and to do good for this place, but to remember that this place is not who you are. We also need to recognize that we do have a role from a religious standpoint as our our jobs in the society. We're called to be ambassadors and heralds of the kingdom of God. The Bible teaches us to be ambassadors of God's reconciliation. And like a good ambassador, it's our job to go into a place that is not our home, into a place that we are strangers in a foreign land, and say, this is the place to which I belong. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. This is what it looks like to be a Christian and to have a life that has been reconciled to God by the blood of his son. This is what it looks like to live in a way that my king has taught me to live. And so everywhere we go and whatever place we find ourselves, whether it's on a big stage as far as our nation is concerned or in our workplaces, in our schools, in our families, wherever we go, when we're surrounded by people who don't know Christ, it is our responsibility through our words and through our actions to put on display what it means to be a Christian to the absolute best of our abilities. But we're also called to be heralds because there are going to be times when things that happen in our nation, things that happen in our state, things that happen in our cities, in our schools, in our jobs, things that happen that are not acceptable to the word of God and to the life of a Christian. And so when we see these things, it's our responsibility to be the voice and the conscience of a nation and the conscience of a state and to speak up against oppression and against the things that can happen that break the heart of God. We're also to be good citizens which means that what's required of us as citizens of a place, as citizens of a nation, is something that we should see as deeply meaningful and important in our lives. 
in Romans, Paul tells us our responsibility to honor the emperor, to honor the earthly institutions and the earthly authorities in our lives and to follow the laws and to be productive members of society. Again, in Jeremiah 29 and then Jeremiah 30, when the people of God were in exile in Babylon, a place that was evil and wicked and all, just participated in all sorts of practices that couldn't be further away from the way that God had called his people to live. When they were taken into this place, God said, listen, you are going to go there and you are going to plant gardens and you are going to raise families. You're going to get married. You're going to build houses and you are going to seek the welfare of this city. These people who took you into captivity, these people whose lives are completely different from how I'm calling you to live, you are going to exist for the welfare of that city. For in the welfare of the city, you will find your welfare because I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and give you increase. See, that passage that we we quote so often, usually around graduation time for people, that passage of scripture is directly tied to God's people who were exiles in a foreign land living for the good of that city. And so it's our responsibility to do the same thing. Our places, the small places and the large, the things like work and school and city and state, and then also our country, they should be better because we are here. We should be, as we talked several weeks ago, we should be constantly working to make things better and make things brighter in the places in which God has put us. Because we're missionaries. And just like missionaries, God has placed us here for a reason. And we should look at every relationship and every opportunity we have as an opportunity to share the gospel in both word and deed and pray that God would save people by his grace and that we would see revival and that we would see change and we would see the gospel shape the communities in which God has placed us. But as we do all these things, because God has not taken us out of these places, it's our role and responsibility to be engaged in the culture in which God has placed us, but that can be a little difficult and the lines can start to blur. And so we have to constantly be reminded that we belong to Christ and no one else. And that our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus and our ultimate identity is followers of Christ. And so if and when there are times when our place calls us to act in a way that is against the nature of God, against the character of God and against the character of a follower of Christ, we always follow first and foremost the law of God before the law of man. And it is really difficult to do this. Because, again, there are so many things pulling us in so many different directions. But when we see salvation the way that Jesus does, when we understand our identity through Christ, it becomes a little more clear. And I love what happens at the end of this passage here. Jesus says, then you should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they, the religious leaders, were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Such a nice phrase in the midst of this conversation. And perhaps, as you've checked your mail every day for the past two weeks, you've longed for a little political silence because <laughs> it's been noisy for a while. But Jesus, as he lays out what it looks like to be a follower of God in the kingdom of the world, they couldn't help but marvel at what he said 
and be silent. These men who wanted to have him arrested and killed couldn't say anything back as he laid out this perfect, beautiful picture of what it looks like to be citizens in two kingdoms. And so when we're trying to find our place in this world, our citizenship, we are going to be surrounded by all kinds of voices calling for our allegiance. But it is crucial in those times that we find ourselves going directly to the word of God and seeing how God teaches us to live as first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven about what it looks like to live as followers of Christ, mirroring Christian virtue and everything that we do, but also how we should live as members of this world and of this nation. And as we do, as we go back to this word, we'll find that all these other voices fall silent as God speaks clearly, reminding us that we are first and foremost citizens of heaven with worldly responsibilities, not the other way around. And so it's our calling to give to Caesar what's his, but also to remember that this is a small token compared to giving God what belongs to him. And so for each and every moment of our lives, let's live with that balance of recognizing that we first and foremost and solely belong to Christ, but he has given us meaning and purpose in the place in which he has laid us and which he has allowed us to live our lives. And so to use that as an opportunity to glorify God, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves by being good citizens in the places in which God has put us. And then pray that God would move through our lives and that we would see salvation and that we would see life change and even culture change through our work individually and our work as a church and our work as Christians throughout this country and throughout the entire world. Let's pray.